everyone, welcome back to another Sporting Blog podcast. Today's Thursday. It's sunny out, and yesterday, um, as some of you may have listened to, I answered the internet's or tried to answer them at the internet's most common questions on football. There are about 80 questions. I didn't do that well. Um, and it's amazing what people ask about football. Um, so I thought that in the name of consistency, we would um, try and keep the football vibe going. So today we are talking to Elena Okomova, who is a football journalist from Russia, um, who is currently studying her MBA in the football industries here at the University of Liverpool, where I also studied my MSc, funnily enough, um, which I didn't know until I <laughs> just um, thought about it. Um, Elena worked for Radio Zenit, which was the official radio station of Zenit St. Petersburg, for more than 11 years, uh, having started out there as an intern, working her way up to being a reporter and head of the sports department, and so on and so forth. She has participated in numerous radio conferences and covered World Cups, Olympic Games, the Euros and the Champions League finals, which we don't talk about after last year's disappointing result between Spurs and Liverpool. Um, and so we're going to have a chat with Elena about Russian football, as it's something that I think for a while, um, especially in the late mid to late 2000s and early 2010s, um, we saw a lot of players move to Russia, um, presumably for big wages, but the standard of football was also excellent. And teams like Zenit um, and others started making good runs into the Champions League. And in England, we always dread the Russian football club when uh, we are drawn with one in the Champions League or the Europa League. Fans know that it's a long journey, hostile atmosphere in the stadiums and um, that it's never going to be an easy game. So let's talk some Russian football. Hi, Elena. Hello, Oli. Thank you for having me here. Uh, you are more than welcome. I think that um, it's interesting that we get to talk to someone who is an expert in, a, in something that we just don't read a lot about um, in our own press. We're very much focused on obviously the Premier League and, and Spain, um, and then a little bit Syria are. But, you know, our mainstream press really doesn't cover football that well outside of those three main leagues and perhaps Germany as well. Um, why don't you just give us, like in your own words, like a little summary of where you think that the, um, the Russian league is at the moment and the general state of Russian football before we kind of get into details? Why don't you just sort of set the scene a bit about Russian football in 2020 for us? Uh, yeah, sure. It's uh, it's my pleasure. Uh, and like I will be concentrating on uh, the economy side. I'll try to to do it as um, as an MBA scholar. I'm very interested in uh, football business. Uh, so like I always try to analyze what's going on in uh, Russian football in terms of uh, business. Unfortunately, like you can't say that. It is a business. Uh, in comparison with the UK, I would say no, definitely not. It's more the it's more like social project. So uh, let me start with this. Almost all of Russian premier clubs are being financed by the regional budgets or companies affiliated with the government. So only Krasnodar Football Club can be recognized as private since it's been uh, run uh, by uh, Russian billionaire and businessman Sergei Galitsky. So there are no public entities among the clubs and they do not disclose any financial metrics. Uh, it's a problem uh, for us, for uh, football journalists of course. The league, however, has uh, become more transparent uh, in uh, recent years, as some of the metrics are analyzed in annual reports produced by um, PricewaterhouseCoopers. Uh, so you can find it, but uh, I, I should warn you that uh, it's in Russian. Uh, but like, if you look to these numbers, it is clear that the biggest concern uh, for Russian football is uh, broadcasting and match day. Together, they generating around like um, 12, 
13% of the total income of uh, football clubs. So broadcasting rights are clearly underexploited. Uh, I know that it's like unimaginable here in the UK, but uh, Russian Premier League uh, only generated around uh, 28 million pounds in broadcasting revenue for the previous season. And that, like this is less than uh, Belgium, the Netherlands and Turkey. And at, at the same time, Russia surpasses these countries so and UEFA uh, club rankings and our advertising market is bigger. So, like, why why is this happening, right? Yeah. Uh, so, what, yeah, what are the reasons behind? I, mean, I would yeah. say, yeah. It's very interesting because, um, obviously, Russia is a huge country with a massive population. Um, I'm presuming football is still as popular there as it always was. Um, just to set the scene in terms of, of media rights and broadcast rights, are... Um, Russian league matches broadcast free to air uh, in Russia or do you need to pay for a subscription service like Sky or BT Sport here? Exactly, Oli. This is like the great question and uh, yeah, the main reason here. So the thing uh, is that audience is not ready to pay for content as football historically has been available for free but a couple of years ago uh, they created um, a much tv channel they i mean like gazprom uh, gazprom media company so they created um, a premium and a federal channel called much tv and this is the monopoly so there there is not there is like only one sport channel in Russia competing for broadcasting rights. Clearly, the monopoly can't bring you uh, value and ca can't increase your broadcasting revenue, right? Uh, yes. And yeah, among other reasons, I would say uh, the poor quality of the product in comparison with the English Premier League. Like Russian football is great. It's great to watch like specially matches like Zenit Spartak or Spartak CSK. Krasnodar is doing great. Uh, there are a couple of really, really nice teams and nice projects. I will talk about it later. Uh, but like in general, as a product, I just feel that the quality is not that, is not that, you know, good. Sure. And so, look, this yeah. is um, one of the, the big problems that, that most um, leagues in Europe face is, is actually without uh, a very big backstory or lots of popular uh, individual players, the quality of the leagues themselves in terms of a competition is pretty low. I think we we could say that about Syria. Uh, I think you know the the unfortunately the money there is also dried up. So you have Juventus winning year on year currently um, in Spain, largely between two clubs and a half in Atletico Madrid. So as as a story, is it really, you know, is Spanish football about La Liga or is it really about Barca, Madrid, and maybe the Atletico? And in the UK, yeah, people say the Premier League is exciting because anyone can beat anyone. But uh, you know, is the standard of football as good as it once was? I don't, I don't know personally. It's up for debate. But I expect in leagues like Turkey, Russia, Greece, and to some extent Germany, the actual quality of the overall competition is probably one of the main reasons that holds the broadcast. Um, money back a bit. Interestingly, uh, I calculated the competitive balance for uh, English Premier League, Bundesliga and the Russian Premier League uh, for uh, like years. And so Russia happens to be like not that bad, uh, actually, like in terms of competitive balance. So in terms of not not one or two clubs dominating, but it's no, right around. No, 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 I w no, I wouldn't say that. Of course, there are you know what there there are i would say like big five almost like in in in, in england so it's it's not only zenit spartak csk it's krasnodar already it is locomotive for sure so yeah there is like big five maybe big six uh in russia so the competitive balance on the paper uh is is great i mean it is uh probably you i mean like not probably you certainly right about uh individuals because back in 2012 uh, when we had hulk when we had axel witzel who plays right now for uh, borussia dortmund um 
This was the AV, the AVP yeah. team. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, AVP manager then, yeah. So yeah, uh, that, that, that was great. And uh, you know, uh, it affects um, low att- uh, it affects like attendance figures as well. Because another big problem in Russia is uh, low attendance figures. Uh, so according to this report I told you about PricewaterhouseCoopers, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, there is like only 53% stadium utilization on average. Like, mm-hmm. could you imagine figures in for Moscow clubs, Spartak, 67%, CSK, 52%, Lokomotiv, 47%. So, so the question is then, Lena, so if people aren't watching on TV and they're not going to the stadiums either, uh, are people just not interested or are they priced out of going to the stadiums or is there something better for them to do? I mean, the old... The reason that you know Sky has done so well with with Premiership football over the years is is the agreement they have that none of the three o'clock matches can be shown, and that was because originally the clubs, the Premiership clubs, were paranoid that if you started showing all the three o'clock matches on TV, no one would go to the grounds anymore. Um, now it sounds like in Russia you've got the problem where people aren't watching on the TV or going to the grounds. So what do you think is the the sort of main reason for that? Uh, you know, there are like a lot of prisons uh, because it's it's too complicated to, you know, to name just one for such a big and diverse country as Russia. Sure. Can you imagine like uh, there is a completely different weather, for example, in some regions. Take Siberia. They, th- this is really cold in autumn and in winter, whereas in the south, it's really warm and, and very nice weather. So, for example, for clubs like Ural from Yekaterinburg uh, or like others, uh, probably the main reason for people uh, not going to the stadium could be weather. Uh, and uh, poor customer experience at stadiums, like stadiums, old stadiums without a roof, because the main competitive advantage of Zenit is uh, their Gazprom Arena with a retractable roof. So these guys, thanks to this newly built stadium, they increased their attendance uh, by 174%. Uh, yeah. Because it's always warm inside the stadium. It's always warm. It's all. It's always like plus 16, plus 18 degrees, which is which is great. And this is like the this made a difference for for Zenit. So yeah, uh, like it could be uh, low attendance figures could be explained by many reasons: cold weather, poor, poor customer mm-hmm. service, uh, lack of purchasing power in some regions among among these reasons. For Moscow, I would say um, it would be a strong competition from other entertainment offerings in the city. Moscow is rich. Uh, Moscow is a great city to live and to have fun in. So yeah. there are, there, yeah, there are a lot of, a lot of uh, entertainment offerings there. So yeah, and Zenit, Zenit is the exception as I, as I've already mentioned. And so um, you used to work at Zenit. Um, yeah. <laughs> and um, was was the I mean, let's just talk about Zenit specifically for a minute. I think that, as you mentioned, um, when Hulk was playing there and Witzel and Vilas Boas was manager, um, it was definitely um, a name that we heard a lot in our in our press and featured regularly in Champions League football and Europa Cup football. So. People are familiar also with St. Petersburg as a destination. You know, I, to be to be perfectly frank, most of the people in, in the UK will know of Moscow and St. Petersburg and a few other places just because of the World Cup. But people do not know the land of uh, of Russia very well. But Zenit, can you just say, has Zenit always been, um, you know, a prominent and affluent club or has it been in recent years that, that Zenit has flourished? Okay, uh, so the rise of Zenit is tightly bound with Gazprom money. The president of this energy giant is a crazy Zenit fan. 
his name is Alexei Miller, and he, <laughs> the funny story, he he drives uh, a hammer in Saint Petersburg, and like uh, we all know, this is like Miller's hammer because it's uh, uh, it has like all Zenit graffitis uh, <laughs> on it. So yeah, yeah, crazy, crazy Zenit fan, as well as the ex-president of Prussia, Dmitry Medvedev. Uh, Vladimir Putin is not that into football, uh, but he was born in St. Petersburg. So if he had to choose, I assume it would be Zenit. So yes, now Zenit is the most powerful club in the country, without any doubts. But I remember the times before Gazprom, because uh, I started supporting the team back in 2003. And we had uh, this first foreign coach in our history, Vlastimil Petrozela from Czech Republic. Mm -hmm. So he built an amazing team with a lot of young homegrown players, with Andrea Shavin among them, by the way. And so this Petrozela, he once said that Zenit will never win Russian Premier League trophy. Meaning that like clubs from Moscow are by far richer and powerful and they are able to bribe referees, for example. Uh, so this phrase that Zenit will never be a champion is very famous because two years later, Zenit won their first title. Then we lifted the UEFA Cup and UEFA Super Cup trophies, beating Rangers and Man United uh, respect, uh, respectively. Uh, and so now uh, we are six times domestic champions, hoping to win the trophy this season as well. So, yeah, and this is like thanks to to Gazprom money. So, no, we we like not. Yeah, Zenit like Zenit um, is a powerful club now, but that was not like always the case. And just just to remind um, people who are listening, Gazprom also um may be familiar to this, is it's one of the, the senior tier partners of the Champions League in terms of sponsorship. Um, those sponsorships don't come cheap, those senior tier partners. Um, I think you could probably buy a senior partnership with the Champions League for around 50 million euros. Um, and I think they've only got five or six senior tier partners. So um, Gazprom are not messing around when it comes to their investment into football and I'm sure that indirectly that helps the football club as well. Of course, no no doubts. Gazprom is uh, yeah, energy giant owned by the state. Uh, biggest, I would say, yeah, the biggest company probably in Russia. Uh, so yeah, uh, Zenit have like always been a very ambitious club competing with Spartak for the title of uh, the most popular club in Russia. And yeah, definitely the money years when players like Hulk and Axel Witzel were moving to St. Petersburg helped the club to gain international awareness. Um, so yeah, uh, but now, you know, um, like amid Russia and Saudi oil price, price war following by the crisis, recession, and I'm not even mentioning the pandemic now. So the club is about to change their uh, business model, trying to increase their commercial revenue. Uh, Zenit have been doing it for a couple of years already. But of course, as long as Gazprom is ready to invest to the clubs and it will depend on their sponsor. Sure. So this is a very complicated question and I don't expect um, <laughs> an answer but if um if a club like zenit is owned uh, or bankrolled by gazprom which is owned by the state and there are other clubs that also have state connections or money coming from the state how do you deal with competition and how does the russian league deal with ethics on that basis if, if more than one club is is receiving the benefit of being associated with the government for example um i would say they they are not that dependent on governmental money as they are um financed by companies affiliated with the government. For example, take Lokomotiv, right? Lokomotiv, uh, it's uh, Russian railways money. CSK, the Russian army money. Uh, Dinamo, uh, the Russian 
bank like uh, um, owned by state money. So uh, if we are talking not Moscow and St. Petersburg, if we are talking collapse for, from regions, they depend on uh, uh, regional budgets. So it's a complicated chain. This is not healthy, of course not. But that's how things work in Russia because they just uh, they just perceive football and sport as the governmental project. That's why like Russians have always been so ambitious in terms of like winning Olympic Games and we know the consequences of that. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, like uh, sports being uh, perceived as a social project, as an ambitious project, which like just, uh, just okay. Let uh, let give them some money. Uh, no, we don't want you to build a business here. Come on, that's not possible. We just we just can uh, can invest in you. And once we do not want to invest in you, that will be over. Sure. Okay. So uh, that's really interesting. And you you touched on how the world economy is, is going to change not only you know actually even before the pandemic especially with oil prices um having a massive effect on on many many industries we yeah. briefly touched on the money years and you actually before we started recording a couple of days ago we touched on on how perhaps things might change if um, the clubs can't pay players as as much in wages. We briefly discussed that players are quite happy to play in the Russian league, homegrown players, because at the moment they're getting paid an awful lot. Do you think that uh, some of these players might head east again if um, if wages start to to be lower than they're used to? Oh, this is a complicated question uh, because, uh, yeah, uh, like concern, concerning fewer Russian players making the move to uh, Premier League or uh, to Europe in general, like, yes, the explanation is very simple. They are happy in Russia as their wages are huge uh, because of foreign player limit. So I don't think they will change the limit, right? So mm -hmm. it's will be always like uh, like teams are restricted to have six foreign players on the pitch. So uh, and bearing in mind that there are not so many talented players with the Russian passport passport, the demand exceeds supply. So that's why like big clubs, uh, big six, for example, big five, they are ready to pay insane wages, preventing players from moving abroad. Their taxes are higher, wages are lower, competition is huge. And besides, like being out of your comfort zone is always scary. Uh, so, yeah, I just don't think that it's I mean, of course, uh, crisis and um, May, 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 yeah, and pandemic as well, gonna change things slightly. But uh, I know that, like uh, in in English, pro in England, probably it will change dramatically. Whereas Russia depended on um, state money and being like, yes, I don't feel that it's it's gonna change dramatically. To be honest with you, because hey, uh, I'm the Russian. Player. I've got the Russian passport. You uh, are restricted with six foreign players on the page. So pay me like my wage to play for you, or I'll, I'll leave you and uh, and go and go some, somewhere else. Yeah. So actually, the the local Russian player has uh, a bit of a ace up his or her mm -hmm. sleeve. Um, talking of uh, of that briefly, is uh, women's football a thing in Russia at all yet? Is there any interest in that or is that growing in popularity at all? Oh, it's, it's painful only. Unfortunately not. So there is no uh, there is no professional women's game in Russia. I know that like they want to to change things. So, for example, uh, from uh, next season onwards, Zenit gonna gonna have uh, the women's team. 
but of course, uh, this is like a very early stages of uh, of uh, women's game being born uh, being born in Russia. So we we have to wait. Yeah, and I think that's um, the case with a lot of countries. Um, it, it will it will get there eventually. Uh, but like everything, it's uh, you mentioned the supply and demand curve earlier. Well, there needs to be a demand to watch this stuff before enough money will get into it to uh, make clubs uh, look at it more seriously. Um, okay, sorry. So back to the um, the the bigger game. So yeah, I, I was interested about that question regarding um, players playing here because uh, it's hard to think of um, a a sort of phenomenal Russian talent that's um, played in our in the Premier League for a while. Um, and you mentioned uh, Arshavin earlier, who was um, a very successful export playing at uh, Arsenal and going back much, much further. Um, there was Andre Kanstrelskis at Manchester United. Um, not so many in recent years. Uh, we had had Ukrainian players, but just thinking, I can't think of the most sort of successful Russian export. Who, um, in Russian terms, who do people consider the most successful footballing export that the country's had? Oh, to be honest with you, I'm just waiting for the new generation of Russian players, uh, for youngsters who will be more motivated, who won't care about money, but for progress. So we desperately need ambitions uh, because like Russian footballers in their mid 20s, uh, they spoiled right now. Uh, so, yeah, but uh, there are two guys you could follow. It's Fedor Smolov playing for Celta. And Alexander Golovin playing for Monaco. Uh, both, especially Golovin, are very talented. So I would say Alexander Golovin. If you if you just want to follow the Russian guy who uh, might be very successful, uh, like uh, in a couple of years, then I'd say Alexander Golovin. There is another uh, guy, but he plays for CSK. Uh, he's um, uh, he was uh, grown in Ufa football club. I will tell you about this club later. It's a very nice project. So this guy is from Ufa. He now he played for uh, CSK and Ufa's CEO. Uh, Shamil Gazizov, he, he 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 tells like everyone that Diveev is the only Russian right now who is who is able to play in England and he will be in the English uh, Premier League someday. And he is very talented and very ambitious and very motivated. So Alexander Golovin playing already for Monaco and Divave playing for CSK. Okay, we'll keep an eye on those. And I'm sure anyone that uh, is listening who plays the football manager games or plays FIFA a lot can tell us what they think of their virtual statistics and if they are any good or not as well. Okay, so it's interesting you just mentioned telling us about um, some interesting stories in Russian football. Um, I I expect uh, people listening are interested to know, well, we've had the money years and a lot of people will remember famous Spartak Moscow sides and CSKA sides of the 80s and 90s. Um, Where do you think Russian football is heading next? Wow, this is a great question. I don't know. This is very interesting to observe what's what's going on in Russia. I just hope that we we will be able to make this move from uh, from government owned like business model to actual business. To be honest with you, and uh, yeah, uh, I I. I I, I, I don't know. I, I don't know. I just I just think that think that a lot of things should be done differently. And uh, I'm also like I also wait for uh, for new ambitions, ambitious um, generation coming in the industry and helping to uh, to change things dramatically. Well, so you mentioned um Ufa before, and yeah. there is a rumor that um, they are being 
looked at um, by a couple of large commercial groups, um, namely the City Football Group that owns Manchester City, New York City, Melbourne, and about four or five other clubs, and I think Red Bull as well. Um, how how do you think that would work, and why do you think that that big groups such as that are interested in buying Ufa? Is that a a talent thing looking for young players or are they trying to get a foothold in the Russian market for other reasons? No, this is definitely a talent uh, market. So Ufa is a very nice project. It's a young club created nine or ten years ago with the aim to bring football to historically ice hockey region of the country. Uh, so they have been like growing very quickly. Many, meaning that this is their sixth consecutive season in the Russian Premier League. Uh, and uh, yeah, as I told you already, like many times, the vast majority of Russian clubs, uh, especially those from regions, depends on the state money. Uh, they are not interested in doing business whatsoever, but Ufa is different. And this is like thanks to their CEO, Shamil Gazizov. What he's been telling the press, uh, what he's been doing like with the club, I want to say it more often. Uh, he says, hey, I don't want it to depend on regional money. They could be gone in one second. I want to build a sustainable club with a clear, clearly articulated philosophy. And basically, uh, that's what he's been doing all these years. So Ufa is a selling club, and their biggest transfer is Alexander Zinchenko joining Man City back in 2016, I guess. Uh, interestingly, he was sold for four million pounds, while Bournemouth were offering eight million. But Ufa and the player agreed that you can't say no to Pep Guardiola and uh, you can't say no to Manchester City. This winter, they almost sold the Romanian centre-back Nedel Charu to Roma Football Club for four and a half million. But uh, the deal was off, unfortunately. So, yeah, they've got like one big European deal, a lot of transfers to big Russian clubs, Zenit, SK, Lokomotiv, Dynamo. They prepare coaches as well. Uh, for example, Zenit's current head coach, Sergei Semak, he began his uh, career in Ufa. He overperformed there, finishing uh, sixth in Russian Premier League and moved to St. Petersburg. So, yeah, they've been like looking for investors uh, all these years. Uh, uh, they've been like they, they've been trying to be very open, very open minded. Uh, so, yeah, and now Citigroup, both both with uh, Red Bull are interested. And as far as I know, Ufa would be happy to join Red Bull project as they are really strong in talent development and and in academies. At the same time, I see some advantages for the region in case of joining Citigroup. Uh, the thing is that Ufa is an oil region. Uh, Bashkortostan, Ufa, this is all about oil. So probably for Sheikh Mansour, the Russian club is a stepping stone in terms of creating business partnership outside the football. So, we, But this is very interesting story to follow. Yeah, that is interesting. And I think that people are <laughs> probably naive if they think that all of the deals that uh, City Football Group have done are purely football related. And uh, that's a very interesting point there um, regarding what benefit that could be to the state of Abu Dhabi as a whole and not just the City Football Group. Um, I think that uh, this is the sort of thing that that our listeners uh, and anyone that's really into football finds fascinating, especially when you have a sort of uh, a, a soul shining light like Ufa competing against the big boys with such a lot of embedded history. And, and you mentioned earlier the the different associations with um, the states that each of those um, clubs have with locomotive with the rail and CSKA with the army and so forth. How did Ufa uh, just nine years ago manage to kind of interrupt that sort of club? How how did they go about even kind of making uh, or, or starting a new club and, and getting to where they're at now? Oh, uh, of course, uh, it's, uh, this is like the regional budget. So they, uh, the, 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 the main goal was 
to bring football to historically like hockey, ice hockey region. Uh, and that's why, uh, like, uh, not the government, but uh, some officials from UFA were interested uh, in these projects and they started investing money. Uh, but what they did very right is like they invited uh, the CEO, Shamil Gazizov. He, he just, he, he thinks differently. Uh, he, he's able to do like a lot of right steps in terms of like he knows he knows uh, his aim and his goal. Uh, he and he try he tries to to yeah to to do things differently uh, to slightly to change their business model not to being dependent on uh, on states money but of course as far as i know i i'm not able to see their like books and uh, annual reports unfortunately uh, but like imagine if we're talking rubles uh, it doesn't matter we're talking rubles right now so let's let's assume the, their budget as uh, for example um, one billion, one billion per year. Uh, a half of it, it's a state money, mm-hmm. but uh, the other half, uh, it's transfers. So they kind of like they are able to to gain some revenue from transfer. They were very successful in uh, talent development and in selling it to uh, to Russian uh, big clubs. So it's kind of this situation when yes you have to you have to do some compromises uh, meaning that you still depend on uh, on original budget money but at the same time you are proud to say that hey I earn a half of uh, a half of our our budget I earn like uh, 500 million yeah it's interesting Interesting. And do you think they've been successful in converting any of those uh, people that were previously uh, big ice hockey fans over to football or is that um, a step too far? It's a step too far because their their biggest concern is, uh, is their stadium. You can't imagine this is a very old uh, venue without any roof. I mean, no roof whatsoever. And uh, yeah, very poor customer experience. Uh, but as far as I know, actually, I'll, I hope to having a conversation with uh, their CEO, Shamil Gazizov, and he's ready to talk to me because I'm very interested in uh, what's going on in, in, yeah, and in uh, their potential deal with Citigroup or Red Bull. Uh, but like uh, I've heard, I'm not, I'm not quite sure, but I've heard that the project of the new stadium is already approved. So if they build the new stadium in Ufa, an oil region uh, with a quite uh, like high purchasing power among population. Uh, and if uh, they offer people a nice service, uh, nice uh, customer service, if they work, um, uh, you know, like uh, if they do some fun engagement, all this stuff, they're going to be very successful. But now it's all about the, the new stadium, definitely. Okay, that's a nice little segue, actually. Um, Talking of new stadiums, um, the World Cup was two years ago, pretty much to the day um, in Russia. It was a successful World Cup from an English point of view. Um, Didn't quite get to the final. Um, I think that it was a nice summer for everyone back home. Um, And we were all very cynical about the the venue before the World Cup started. Um, that's nothing new, and that's certainly not um, any slight really against Russia. I think people were very cynical about what the World Cup would be like in South Africa. They were worried about what it would be like in Brazil. People were also worried about what the, the Olympics would be like in Athens and Brazil because everyone worries about whether stadiums are built on time, infrastructure, policing, so on and so forth. Now, perhaps one of the biggest worries um, from many different football associations, not just ours, about the uh, World Cup in Russia was the 
the hooligan element and not just from the Russian side, but of, of hooligans potentially traveling from different countries to sort of have the World Cup of fights. Um, that didn't seem to transpire. And we were even led to believe that um, the Russian government did address some of the more important people involved in the hooligan firms to ask them nicely or tell them nicely that there would be no fighting uh, and not to embarrass us on the world stage sort of thing. Um, from uh, from your point of view, how did that play out before the World Cup? Because really it was it was probably the main topic of conversation here, especially amongst English fans who had bought tickets and were going to travel. A lot of people were quite worried. What what was your perception of it before the World Cup started? To be honest with you, Oli, I'm surprised that you guys expected crowd violence and hooliganism. I mean, like we, I would say we solved this problem. Uh, I would say it was a big concern back in 90s, early uh, 2000s. But like now, stadium is a safe environment. Uh, it's a family environment. Um, so yeah, no hooliganism whatsoever. Of course, if we are talking about matches between big firms, uh, Spartak, CSK, Spartak, Zenit, uh, probably you you can like theoretically, theoretically you can expect some. Uh, I don't know, some fights, but I, I, I can't even like remember the last time I came across uh, this topic or the last time I was like really worried, thinking, oh, no, I just don't want to go to this game because it might be like dangerous for me as, as a woman or I don't know. No, it's a, it's a safe environment right now. Uh, but yet, yeah, uh, speaking about the World Cup, yeah, huge success. I mean, like, I know that not everybody was happy to come and play in Russia, to say the least. And there are many reasons for, for that, uh, including politics, corruption, countries, authoritarian image uh, in general. But yeah, a huge success. And uh, if we are talking people, not the government, this is a very friendly and hospitable nation. And we, we, we just try to do our best to make visitors happy. Uh, yeah, yeah look, and that's, the, that's the, uh, the vibe that I got from, from people I know that went. I didn't make it myself, um, but I knew a lot of people that did go and they had a great time. I think the, um, the hooligan thing is, is something that we can put down to the rise of clickbait media and lad-driven culture. There are, I won't name them because I'll get in trouble. There are four or five very big sports, uh, well, websites, digital platforms, let's say, that have big social media channels that will get an awful lot of clicks based on videos about things like hooliganism and whatever. And I think in the build-up to the, the World Cup in Russia, people were creating very, um, let's say, very engaging content following uh, hooligans around from different countries and kind of building up this image that these people were in training for the fights and interviewing Russian hooligans saying how they don't drink anymore and they train and when the English come they're all a bunch of drunks and all of this stuff and and I, think, <laughs> I know and and, and, on, and I think people remember these videos but it's it's for me it was a very cynical thing that a lot of media companies did to to get some clickbait and and to to, to navigate away from the real issue which was the actual football and as we all saw, the World Cup, it was a really good World Cup from a sporting point of view. And we heard nothing but good things um, about the hosting. And I work with a few uh, Russian people and people that have Russian family. And I can confirm they're very ex extremely hospitable. And um, so I'm glad, you know, it went well. And um, I think that all of those things, not just the hooliganism, but the things people worry about, like stadiums and infrastructure and travel. Well, of course, it's going to take you a long time to get places if you're at one end of the country to another. That's just the way it works, isn't it? Um, but largely, I think it was successful. What legacy do you think it has left? How, did it increase people's kind of appetite for football? Did 
were there any initiatives to um, you know keep football growing in in areas or regions that received investment money because of the World Cup? Anything like that? Oh, I would say uh, the um, the legacy would be uh, football infrastructure in Russia, with 12 stadia being built or renovated. So now the clubs have to take advantage advantage from from that and just boost their attendance. Uh, so I would say, yeah, uh, if we're talking legacy, that will be definitely uh, stadiums stadiums across the country. Because like the thing is, uh, of course football is the most popular sport in Russia. Uh, the second place, I would say, uh, belongs to ice hockey. But historically, uh, with uh, such a cold winter, it's, it's, very, it's very difficult to play football in November, in December. Uh, I'm not saying like January, February. Like there is like, I would say, uh, for example, in St. Petersburg, uh, the weather is uh, not <laughs> is very bad for nine months, so you you're not able to enjoy like playing football outdoors. So it's it's very important. It was very important to build a nice stadium with uh, roofs, uh, and like the the World Cup had a dramatic impact on uh, on football infrastructure. Just give us more pitches, just give us more stadiums and uh, things gonna change dramatically. Yeah, I think, uh, well, it's interesting really because even in here in the UK where grassroots football has a massive, massive budget, um, every day people are still saying there's not enough places to play. And I think that um, the the success in, in lots of other sports has been if you provide places for people to play, uh, they generally do. Um, you don't often see a football pitch not being used, put it that way. Um, OK, look, I think we've covered some really interesting stuff there and um, be fascinated to catch up again in a few months and see uh, where we're at. Just tell us a bit about what you're doing with your MBA. What's your dissertation in? Are you focusing on football in Europe, in Russia or the UK? Um, tell us a little bit about that. Uh, so uh, I'm a media geek with 11 years of experience. So I kind of like uh, always uh, happy to delve into media stuff. Uh, uh, now I have uh, the project uh, with uh, the Anfield Rep. This is a media company, uh, podcasts, uh, writing um, about uh, Liverpool Football Club. Uh, together with my client, we try to understand uh, because it's a premium service. Uh, I would say it's premium service. It's kind of like business model uh, uh, when you have uh, not only like premium su subscribers, but also free content. So we're trying to, to understand how uh, how to increase the number of uh, of paid uh, of paid subscribers? Uh, this is like this is my dissertation. This is my project uh, right now. Uh, so yeah, I would be happy to to delve into into the UK sport, uh, English Premier League. Uh, I'm a Zenit fan, uh, of course, but uh, you know. Uh, um, the English Premier League is amazing. It's the best product, um, the best product in terms of like competitive balance, in terms of like media broadcasting we, 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 we have right now. So it's a great example to learn from. Well, yeah, and um, the Premiership is back next week. Um, we hope for good, um, assuming there are no problems with uh, another lockdown because of the pandemic and so on. Um, and interestingly, talking of media um, from someone that, you know, I work in that world as well. It's uh, it's very interesting that how far media companies and I'm talking really about Sky here in the main and BT to some extent, how far they can go when pushed. And interesting that in order to, I imagine, um, give something back to their commercial partners who haven't had any um football exposure for the last few months uh, giving away 20 something games free to air and giving four games to the bbc and uh, amazon prime having a big package as well so it's interesting now that actually maybe 
in the strangest of circumstances and in empty stadiums, more people might watch these premiership football games than who ever watched premiership games before. Um, and I think that that's going to make for a very interesting business model for the future. Um, because one might argue, and um, you and I probably would enjoy talking about this at length, but um, if you're a commercial partner, of course, Sky Sports is your best friend. But if football were made free to air, you would get more bang for your buck. Um, of course, the subscriber money is what makes money for Sky. And we touched on this with um, with what you were saying about Russian football earlier, that they're, they're not used to paying for it. Um, over here, of course, we've... We've just got used to the fact that if you want to watch live premiership football, you either have to pay for it or you have to go out to a pub uh, or a bar and watch yeah. it. But and I don't advice, know if that's always going to be the case. My advice, keep it up. Keep it. Don't <laughs> go there. Don't follow the Russian football example. Don't go there. Just give it up. Uh, stick with the subscription-based model because this is the future. But what do you think about clubs going down a subscription-based model instead uh, yeah, it, it, it's definitely like uh, a very interesting story to follow. I mean, like uh, these all all these OTT platforms, they are quite successful in the US, but I'm not sure if uh, if in a foreseeable future we will see it uh, here in Europe. Well, I think the, the difference is, of course, um, between the US and here is that in the main, in all of the major American sports, each professional team is give or take the only one in its region. So even in a place like Texas and the NFL, you've got the Dallas Cowboys and the Houston Texans. Uh, Texas has a population of 30 something million people. So even if you divided it in half, each club has 15 million fans who are very, very passionate. That's more than most countries. <laughs> and um, therefore, an OTT platform makes perfect sense. Premiership football, harder to say. Um, if you're Bournemouth, you're simply not going to have enough OTT subscribers to compete with the Sky money. If you're Liverpool or Manchester United, your global following may make perfect sense to, to leave Sky and allow people in Singapore Malaysia and just about everywhere else pay money to watch your matches live but it wouldn't be fair across all of the premiership clubs and indeed those in the championship but yeah one to watch in the future because uh, certainly I don't know if uh, people are going to pay the money for Sky forever and a day especially not people who are under a certain age at the moment and um, look I'd love to come back to that another time um, and perhaps we can um, catch up again after the premiership season is over and get your thoughts on that uh, and what's coming in the future oh sounds really good thank you Oli. thank you for having me not at all well enjoy your day i'll let you get on with that and uh, we'll catch you next time to all of our listeners uh, we are a reasonably new podcast but we've had some good feedback so far um we'll try and work these show notes up as well so there's something to read and um we'll link out to any of lena's um, articles or anything she'd like us to if you're interested you can get in touch with her directly I'll put her social media bits and pieces also in the show notes uh, that's it for us have a good day guys see you later